The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome everyone. Usually every few months uh, we take time to check in about our sitting practice and see if people have questions about what they're noticing in sitting practice or daily life practice, of course. Um, even comments about what you're noticing and how your practice seems to be developing for you, what seems to be in the way of what you would consider good practice. So it's often nice for all of us to hear from each other because it normalizes the experience of being mindful and what gets in the way of mindfulness. So feel uh, courageous to speak up if you'd like. And also it's nice to say your names if you don't mind when you speak up. So anybody have any thoughts? Yes. Um, yeah, I'm Maria. And um, I find that negativity gets in my way. And I, am, I tend to be more negative when I'm overworked. Yeah, probably that sounds familiar for a lot of us. A lot of the obligations we have in life are, you know, given how our minds are conditioned, are irritating. Even things that really need to be done, like some of, some of the people in the room are taking care of their aging parents, and some of you in the room are taking care of little kids, and sick pets, and sick partners or partners that are needy in one way or another. So even things like that that we really care about can be quite irritating, let alone filling out our taxes or the things at work that we have to do. And so, of course, you know, it's nice to be able to simplify our lives. But a lot of the time, that uh, trying to simplify our life is just an acting out of aversion. I mean, in a way, you know, working the job that you're working, in a way, it's already too late 
to take that tact. I mean, maybe that was a decision you could have made last year before you decided to renew your contract or something like that. Didn't take early, early, early retirement or something. And there we are. We have those obligations. And so that's not necessarily the time to think about, well, I wish I didn't have these obligations. Because then that's, that's an acting out of aversion. And we can see that the not liking of these different activities that we're obliged to do is uh, it's like we're concocting a weight and then therefore it feels heavy. You know, we actually create the sense of weight by generating the not liking of it. You know, when we think about how much we don't like it, it becomes heavy. So, so what I'm about to say doesn't take away from the value there may be in making choices in life where things are relatively simple and the obligations are relatively simple and the obligations that we have, the responsibilities that we have are not only relatively simple but they make sense. Like we, we understand, like when we take care of a kid, it makes sense like why we have to feed them or why we have to change the diapers or why we have to do whatever we do. But in some of our obligations or responsibilities, it's not really, it's easy to forget like why am I doing this anyway? What a, what a value is this? So we can be more careful, full of care when we make commitments to be this kind of person, you know, to have this kind of job. We can really weigh like, well, I have this one life to live. What do I want to fill this life up with? What kind of activity? You know, and we make choices. But then when we made a choice, then we've made a choice. And then the practice is not to add anything. So the actual, like if you're, you know, being asked to generate a memo that you think is stupid or being asked to make copies for the meeting or, you know, whatever task that we're being, our life is presenting to us, the actual activity tends not to be uh, what tends to be more unpleasant isn't the activity as much as our not liking of it. So when the mind gives itself to the activity, just the actual doing of whatever it is, it minimizes the suffering. And we might actually find some ease in it. We might find a kind of equanimity in just doing what the moment's asking of us. It's amazing how appropriate aversion, irritation seems over and over again in our minds. It seems like it's appropriate to be angry or averse or irritated or impatient. But when has impatience or irritation ever helped? You know, it's just, it's like um, somebody once called it rope burn in the sense that, you know, life is going, our life is going a particular way, but we're resisting it. We're doing it, but as we're doing it, we're resisting it. So we're just creating a lot of friction, a lot of heat, which is unnecessary. I found a lot of liberation in, in moments in my life simply by recognizing 
being really clear about what I've already committed to. It's like, uh, for example, in my relationship with my wife, I can at times feel some resistance, you know, to who she is, who I imagine she is, or what I imagine the relationship is. But as soon as I remember that I'm committed to this relationship and I'm not going anywhere, a lot of that, that not liking of whatever it is in the relationship that's irritating, for example, it just falls away when I realize I'm committed to it. Or same with my job at Common Ground. You know, when I, when I realize, you know, for the time being I'm not going anywhere, then it's easy to do whatever I need to do in the job. Or even in an interaction with an individual, like once I realize I'm not going to end, I'm not going to walk away, this person is in my life, then something relaxes, you know, the impatience falls away. Does that make any sense? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I can work with it. <laughs> it's the negativity that's the problem. Like I said, it's not necessarily the tasks themselves. Right. Right. So the question is, can you more fully give yourself to the activity? And it doesn't mean you're not doing too much, but if you're doing too much and you can do something about it, well then you would probably do something about it if you could, if you can. I mean, but if you're not doing something about it, we kind of presume that there's nothing really you can do about it. Except one thing, which is, once you're committed, just go forward. Don't reflect, don't spend mental energy reflecting on how unpleasant it is. It doesn't make it less unpleasant, knowing, remembering that it's unpleasant. We just, we actually, the commitment is the, the most efficient, easeful way to move through life, is to be com completely committed to what we're doing than criticizing what we're doing, criticizing the limitations of our life or the limitations of our job, the limitations of the world. I mean, if there's something we can do, we should do it. It's like that uh, quote, the Dalai Lama makes, uh, restates this teaching from Santideva, this great Indian Buddhist monk from over a thousand years ago. And uh, in it, he has this passage where he says, you know, if there's something we can do about a problem, do it. If there's nothing we can do about it, then there's nothing we can do. In either case, there's really no need for agitation, for suffering. If there's something we can do, like the sound, you know, if there's something, <laughs> if that's your car, <laughs> somebody, you can do something about it. But if there's nothing we can do about it, like when the, there's a drum corps has been out at several nights over the last month from the charter school across the street, you know, if there's nothing, like I have to decide, am I going to get up there, get up rather, leave the group, and go talk to who's ever in charge? But once I realize I'm not going to do that, then I can really let go because I've decided I'm not going to do anything. The thing is, our mind isn't trained to, to be committed. 
This is nothing compared to the drum corps, let me tell you. <laughs> well, who knows who'd also find it our new location. Yeah, Anne. You know, so many things. Um, when you say our minds aren't trained to be committed, I think uh, one of the things that is so interesting to experiment with is, for me, inaction. Because in so much of my regular life, I solve it, I fix it, I change it, I, I maneuver it or manipulate it to more better suit whatever the thing is that I'm committed to attain. And so it's... Um, it's an interesting experiment for me to just do nothing and have that be what I'm doing. Yeah. Actively nothing. That's very weird to me. Yeah, it's a good practice for type A people, especially. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and I think that's a good reminder in terms of all of the instructions. You know, we hear these many instructions from the Buddha and, and from many of our teachers in this kind of lineage of awareness practice. And we have to remember that the different instructions are like different medicines for different particular conditions. And some of us need that kind of medicine, skillful means. But other people, that's exactly the wrong kind of medicine. It's much more like to do something. But for all of us, there is, uh, I think I mentioned this, I forget where, maybe on the retreat, but one uh, teaching that Pema Chodron mentions from, I think it's from an ancient Tibetan teaching, which is, um, see if I can remember it, I might not be able to. Try something different, I think is the first instruction. Do it again, repeat, repeat it all day long or something like that. And the idea is that uh, the worst thing to do is to keep doing the same thing getting the same result and being frustrated by the result we're getting. Like recognizing this isn't the way, this isn't good, this isn't what I signed up for. And yet, okay, so what I'm going to do, I'll do the same thing again. And oh, this isn't what I want, this isn't good. And this happens over and over again. So the idea, I mean, the, the, basic, the basics of Buddhism is karma, is understanding how things work. So if we try something different, we're going to get a different result from it. And then we'll start making these connections. The mind relates this way, and this unfolds from it. The mind relates this way, this unfolds from it. And we begin to see that when the mind relates in this kind of a situation, when the mind relates in this way, it becomes the heart becomes more constricted. When this situation is happening and the mind relates in this way, the heart releases. And we just begin to understand how it works, you know, how, how, what leads to release, what leads to contraction. It's, it's like developing, we know there is this thing called attachment, identification, and non-attachment, non non-identification, or release. And although we know it conceptually, it's a dynamic, you know, what attachment looks like depends on the particular situation. What non-attachment looks like depends on the particular situation. So we can't pin it down. We have to see it from many different angles before there's this intuitive wisdom that just intuitively knows what release looks like in this moment, what attachment would be like in this moment, where not to go. 
So yeah, I, sometimes I give people that instruction, you know, that might have that tendency to immediately want to do the same thing, you know, which is to go home, to, to give themselves once a month a half a day where they're not doing anything, including not meditating. You know, like just sit, just hang around your apartment. And you know, if you piddle a little, that's okay. But don't, don't intentionally clean a bunch of stuff or do a project. Just hang out and sort of stare stagnation, non-doing in the face, you know, and welcome it in. Like that uh, it isn't a scary thing to, to let time pass by. <laughs> For me, I have a little bit, I have both. I have both kind of a watery quality that can sit for a long time, but I, I also have kind of a more fiery side, doing side, and um, but I notice sometimes that uh, it's a it's a real death to just sort of sit there, and this happened a lot. I used to teach elementary school back in the 80s, and uh, I worked in business right after college, and at a consulting firm. And it was really hard work. I thought, oh God. And then I got interested in spiritual practice. I said, oh God, I got to get an easier job. So I found out UC Berkeley had a one-year program to get a teaching certificate to teach, and I did it. And uh, I started teaching, and it was like so much harder <laughs> <laughs> than working for a high-powered consulting firm. And uh, so I'd go home, and I'd be sort of like the living dead on the weekends. You know, I have so much to do, but I just sit there. You know, and I was starting to meditate and practice, and so, you know, I just sit there, I'd practice, and I'd just be like dead, and I just, I'd feel like all the fear about needing to do things, and, but I, I just sort of, and I really, I made peace with like um, all the fear of things not getting done and being a failure and all that kind of type A energy. It was, it was really useful and, and, you know, I might have been better planned had I gone to work or things like that. But, um, yeah, sometimes that trusting that stagnant energy, it's like there are things to learn there in, non, in the non-doing. And it doesn't, whenever we take up a skillful means like that, it's not forever. It's just an experiment in truth, you know, we're just, it's like medicine. We take it until we learn what we can learn from it. And then we may not need to take it anymore. What else comes to mind? Yeah, Nick. Hi, I'm Nick. I'd like to express my gratitude for TCMC and everybody that makes this place work. I've been meditating for about 10 years at home. And I started come here in June of last year. And things have accelerated a hundredfold. And I'm truly grateful for it and continue uh, and tend on coming back. So thank you all. Thanks, Nick. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Greg. Yeah, I've been trying to um, work on some of the stuff you were talking about earlier this year, like when you begin a set, you start with some kind of reflection on wisdom. Mm -hmm. And what I picked up on more specifically is this idea of reflecting on non-getting or non-being you know, non-acquisitive. But I get kind of blocked mentally as far as how to really investigate that and, or 
reflect on that. It just kind of becomes abstract, and I'm not quite sure how to how to work with that. So I'm looking maybe for some practical yeah. ideas how to do that kind of reflection. Yeah. So again, the, uh, if you weren't around earlier in the winter, um, we were working with the five-part set of instructions, and the first part was like instead of just jumping into meditation practice, the first step is to do what we can to bring about what we would call right view. And wrong view is like when we're taking the moment very personally and caught up in what the Buddha would call the uh, three unwholesome roots, the, the root of unwholesome actions. So greediness and uh, aversion and delusion, not seeing things clearly. These are the three unwholesome roots. Any kind of understanding or view that comes out of those three roots have negative consequences that you know leads to stress and suffering. So then we, over a period of a couple months, we looked at different ways to begin the sit, to reflect, to like what to contemplate with the mind that might correct, might sort of flip over any greediness in the mind or any irritation or aversion in the mind or any delusion, not seeing things clearly in the mind. And so Greg mentions, you know, we generally have, you know, our conventional view is generally filled with acquisition, like we're trying to acquire something. Like even here in a talk and discussion like this, we're trying, the ego is trying to get something. You know, I really want to get this so my life works better. So how do we go beyond this uh, view of acquisition, striving to get something? How do we go beyond it? And there are different ways. I mean, the, the basic antidote for greed is understanding impermanence in different ways. You know, bringing up the truth of impermanence. Like, and there are many ways to do that. So you could contemplate how many times you've gotten what you've desired and yet the mind is still craving. So you just you like bring things to mind and this contemplation can be repeated so once you have a routine or way of doing this you could just do it again like you wanted to grow up, I've grown up. You know I wanted to have some money, I have some money. You know when we were teenagers we wanted to have sex. Now sometimes we have sex you know, we wanted to be respected. Maybe some people respect us. So we can just sort of see that a lot of the things we strongly desired at different times, we have now had maybe many, many times. And so that just that understanding that a gratification of desire doesn't lead to the end of desiring. Because we've had a lot of gratification. Many, many times what we wanted was gratified. And yet we still crave, we still want, want a nice meditation sit. And when you have a nice meditation sit, do you stop wanting to have a nice meditation sit? No, you actually want it more. You know, oh, that was so good. I hope it, you know, next time's even better. So it, it just kind of, so that, this is how you could reflect like gratification doesn't lead to the end of desire. You could, you could reflect, where is the end of desire? Is there an end to desire? So that we're seeing that the desiring itself is not a path to pursue. The desire of sense experience, 
That doesn't mean sense experience isn't pleasant. Everybody here knows that sense experience can be pleasant and it can be unpleasant. So, you know, don't think that the Buddha or anybody in this tradition would be saying to us that sense experience isn't pleasant. There are sense experiences that are very pleasant. <coughs> and wholesome too, you know, like good friendship and, you know, sleeping, especially the first few minutes when you lie down when you're tired, that's really pleasant. And seeing a beautiful scene, you know, seeing a nice sunset or swimming in the ocean when it's warm enough. And there are a lot of pleasant human experience, having a nice meal, falling in love for a while. <laughs> but it doesn't, what we need, what we forget is the limitations. So, and this is another tact, is to think about the limitations of desires or of sense cravings. You know, that they're limited. Doesn't mean that they're bad, but that they're limited. And then, you know, the five reflections is another way. So just the impermanence of this body itself, like the, the insecurity of the body itself, that it can get sick, that it can get old, that it can die, that in fact everything that we have can fall away, will be taken away, is a way to uproot striving from the mind. Because it just stops making sense. The more we have integrated the truth of impermanence, the less sense striving makes. Because striving always comes from the sense of self. And you know, our sense of self depends on some kind of fixed notion. And when, we, when we're able to see that whatever that fixed notion might be, like this body, this life situation, the more we can see that it's an impermanent thing, that it's fragile, that it, will, it has arisen and it will fall away, it will change then it's hard for that to sort of, you know, to sort of depend on that being, you know, like whatever that wants, whatever we might, however we might defend it. Ultimately, we see it's just temporary. That it's security, whatever we might acquire, which is usually about security, that it's temporary at best. Yeah, Dave. Uh, what you were saying about commitment earlier, it got me thinking uh, last night I was out on a really long run and I was listening to a podcast and they were interviewing John Kabat-Zinn and he was talking about mindfulness and bringing that into everyday life and um, being, you know, that there's like these two different ways of dealing with life, one is like you're running to your desk as fast as you can. And I know I've lived in that before, where it's just kind of like the nihilistic, nothing matters anyways, so might as well live it up. And then it's like, but then there's this other way of totally opening up to, you know, the present moment of your life as it actually is, and how different those two ways are, and just how much freedom is comes from actually opening up and letting your life speak to you almost instead of, you know, just running. And uh, he was also talking about how when we fully devote ourselves to the 
moment of whatever it is, but that that is the destination. Because I can get so caught up in my head of like what I'm gonna be or where I'm gonna go or all that, and it's like when I stop and just realize that you know I've got this poster on my wall that I take not home, and it says something like you know I've arrived, I'm home, my destination is in each step, and it's like that from that moment on, like. Even my run became my practice, where each step was I wholeheartedly devoting myself to each step, and you know the, the long. You know I was out for a few hours, so it can seem so long when it's just one step at a time. But when I'm really thinking like, oh, I have this much left to do, it's just overwhelming. And then I thought about my life and how it's the exact same way when I'm just totally devoted to each step of my life in that moment. That's where I. That's where my life is. It's not out there. And uh, the last thing that I just want to say is that he said that when mindfulness in Asian, most Asian languages directly translates into mind, the word for mind and heart is actually the same. So mindfulness can also mean heartfulness or wholeheartedness. Yeah. So it doesn't, it's not this far of a thing, it's just fully devoting yourself to what's happening. Yeah, thanks so much, Dave. Yeah, I heard that was a good interview. You're talking about the Speaking of Faith interview. Yeah, people can probably get to the website and download it. I heard it was really a good interview. And there's, uh, you know, commitment is a really good wor word, or wholeheartedness is a good word. And uh, it reminds me of a story that Robert Thurman uses that, that sort of gives that same flavor of what you were talking about, Dave where he says, um, if we're stuck on a New York subway, like people often are, and you know your stop is in two or three stops, you just kind of grit, bear it, you know, bear the closeness and the smells of people you don't want to smell and whatever, you know, it's sort of this inner defensiveness that we, or callousness or whatever, that we do use a lot to get through life. And then he said, but, if you had the sense that it's a subway train, an eternal subway train ride, like never going to end, well, we'd have a completely different relationship to being in that moment. And that's, I think we can use that even here. Like, uh, if we think this moment is about what's coming next, then we can be quite violent and negligent in the moment because it's somehow it itself isn't a value. What's a value is our imagination of what's coming. Basically nothing. I mean, it's just a concoction. And there's a, a inner violence, really, to everything else, to what's true. But it's a, we can flip that around. You know, just the thought or just the reflection, just the opening that absolutely everything we're looking for is already here now. I mean, just to have that, you know, how that changes our relationship to the present moment. That if everything the heart ever needed or wanted, what it really wants is already here. If nothing else, our sense of interest changes. You know, it's like, oh, is it? I mean, even that, just to have an open mind. like. Is this moment really okay? 
I mean, that's a really good lifelong exploration. Is this moment okay? Can this be okay? Is this moment worthy of openness or defensiveness? Should the heart be defended or should the heart be open? What's, what works? Let's see. You know, so we try openness. You know, just like openness is, you know, we're naturally sensitive creatures. So openness is like sending out little tendrils, little sensitivity rootlets in all direction. You know, we're, we're feeling the wholeness of the moment. We're feeling it's like this. And it's alive and it's unknowable. It's real. And the opposite, <coughs> fear or greed, is we're closing ourselves off from the moment <clears throat> and congealing around an idea, a thought about the future, a thought about what we're frightened of. And we're basically, we're cutting ourselves off from life. And the unfortunate thing is we cut ourselves off from life, <clears throat> our life begins to hurt. So we figure we should do something. And what we do is we cut ourselves off from life. So we keep repeating the same thing, getting the same results. And that's what the Buddha means by samsara, the cycles of suffering. Thanks again, Dave, for sharing those thoughts. <clears throat> yeah, Dill. I think um, I need to spend more time uh, being forward. Or talking about it. Because I think it's, it's a very, very interesting issue, not just a topic to talk about, but also to understand. Yeah. And I mean, I noticed as Dave was talking that, you know, I was reminded to, to more completely be in the moment, you know. And, and so any moment will do, you know, like right now. The whole experience of being together in the room can completely move in a beautiful direction as we as a community more fully show up in our lives right now. And that doesn't take any special technology or special technique. It's, it's nothing more than this wholeheartedness or this trusting. And we're just trusting what's already true. And so even if it feels a little awkward, that's what we trust. You know, if we're, like, if we're uncertain, we trust that. If the body's aching now, we trust that. If we're dull and we don't have a clue what people are talking about, you know, it's like we don't reject that. We include that. Oh, yeah, that too. Yeah, Joel. My name's Joel. Um, you're talking about trusting this may feel, but I guess I, I just see this uh, one of how you feel is kind of obsessive and they have any about a certain issue. Uh, um, I, I guess I somehow I feel like they're, if that's with you, then uh, I don't know. I, I 
What was that last thing you said? There's some peace to be made in things that are just unresolved. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and what, what is it, Joel, that allows you to have that perspective? What allows that perspective? You know, that, 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 with that what I heard you saying is, is just an expression or just, a, yeah, maybe a manifestation of compassion, like the, the willingness to be close, to be intimate with what's unclear, what's confusing, what's disturbing, what's unpleasant. And so that may be the answer to your question, you know, like how when things are strong and overwhelming for us. The, the, the question is, is somehow running from it more stable and wholesome? Denial of it more stable or wholesome, trying to fix it, being angry at ourselves, being angry at the world. What, what actually is a relief is to know that it's like this and to care about it, you know, because it allows us to include it. And to not include the feeling of being overwhelmed makes us more overwhelmed because it's just another thing we have to do. We're feeling overwhelmed. And on top of feeling overwhelmed, we have to pretend we're not overwhelmed. We have to try to get rid of the overwhelmed feeling, which is even more overwhelming. So this is where compassion comes in. Compassion is such a essential, I mean, it's really the active part of wisdom. So wisdom manifests as compassion, as skillful action in the world. So skillful action in this case is just that uh, recognition that being close to the pain is useful, is skillful, is helpful. Running from the pain, building a box around the pain, denying it takes a lot of effort and uh, in the end doesn't work very well. You know, ends up exhausting the mind, frustrating the mind. <coughs> when you say care about it, I get a little confused when I hear that phrase in the energy channels, writings, or maybe I've heard it here, but um, can, you, can you define that by caring about uh, unpleasant feelings or mindsets? Yeah, there, there's an experience where, you know, when we, when we allow the natural sensitivity, I think uh, was Dave, you were saying that chitta means heart and mind. So when we let the heart and mind, when we allow it to be naturally sensitive to pain or to suffering, the heart in a way breaks. There's a, a tenderness or a rawness, you know, from that exposure. From an ego point of view, the ego doesn't want to be vulnerable and exposed and tenderized by pain. It wants to be defended and kind of pain over there, 
me over here. So when we, when we remember this possibility of being compassionate or allowing compassion to arise, which is this wisdom that it's okay to be close. It's actually okay for the heart to be tenderized, to be broken, to be raw, to be exposed. It just, it's our habit to think that that's dangerous, that something's going to break, or that we won't be able to do our work. You know, doesn't that seem right? Like we won't be able to function in the world if the heart gets tenderized by pain. But we should actually see if that's true. Because it, actually we might work better. We may do better in the world having been the heart being broken up and uh, tenderized by life, by you know what's actually happening. It's interesting, like sometimes before I have to give a talk, you know, I'd like everyone, I have my ups and downs and sometimes, you know, I'm going through difficult things and feeling a lot of pain. And it, not so much now, but a while back, you know, it was like, there's just no way I can give a talk. You know, I am, I am in such a mess and uh, my heart is hurting and I don't know what to do with this pain. But, you know, I... I remember what I say sometimes, so, <laughs> so I, you know, I would work with it and feel exposed and feel like my heart's breaking. And when our heart breaks, it's like the ego structures fall apart. I mean, that's part of letting the pain in because our ego depends on some distance from pain. And when we let pain in, it's sort of the ego feels exposed and fragile. But I found that, at least in terms of talking about the teachings of the Buddha, it works pretty well. And I, I, and I have a sense, not just in that field, you know, but that it makes us a more authentic human being. And uh, all of a sudden, what we see when we look at other people radically changes, because the more we are intimate, the more we understand what it is to be a suffering human being the more we know how to relate to other people because they're suffering human beings too. And we relate more with love and patience and a kind of tenderness, just like we were realizing, you know, with our own pain. And that is really useful because one of the things about strong pain is it has a tendency to make us feel like this is unique. And what we want to see is it's not unique. This is really the fabric of life. And we see it, we should, you know, with practice, we can see it everywhere, all the time. I mean, just right now, we can just experiment, you know, just gaze around the room, you know, you see different people, and we, we just know, I mean, how many people here have had difficult breakups, you know? Just, just imagine, like, as messy as maybe our breakups have been, we can imagine that there are a lot of people in this room that have had messier breakups, maybe where the pain is still very much alive. Maybe there are a few people who have lost children. Probably a lot have lost parents and other close relatives. Many people have been laid off or fired or shamed, abused in different ways. You know, all the different kinds of phobias and neuroses that people have, we have. 
and all the beautiful things that people in this room, like the real simple joy. How many moments of all these people here, how many moments of simple joy have arisen in our hearts? You know, just seeing how green the grass is in the early spring or seeing a bunny rabbit hop around, you know, whatever it is. So just just that kind of the universality of our experience, how what seems so unique isn't actually that unique. Makes it a little bit uh, easier to tolerate the pain that we have in our life. Other thoughts people have? Yeah, Vernon. Uh, Vernon, um, you were, uh, Sunday you were talking about some signposts for um, sitting where you may recognize some healing. I don't know if that's good mm-hmm. or not, but um, oh, you know my background a bit. I come from more of a um, deity, higher power mm-hmm. background where it's pretty obvious where the signposts are. Even in the 12 steps, it talks about um, profound alteration in your reaction to life and this vital sixth sense. Mm-hmm. And I was talking to my friend Mike about that when we came out, and it feels like I kind of wanted to defend that. But, and um, so, it, being that I wanted to defend that, that part of my life, it feels like you could expound a little more on the signpost, or you know, is it awareness? I, I have a hard time grasping what is it. It's, well, it's kind of awareness. It's kind of opening your heart. It's kind of interacting. It's mm-hmm. like it's kind of vague. Where what exactly? So are you are you asking like, how do we know if the practice is working, or are you asking right. about the higher power? Oh, uh, kind of both. Where like if you're gonna. Uh, maybe if you're going to put in Buddha words, uh, maybe like the seventh step and the, the twelfth step, I think is pretty friendly. So if it says humbly ask him to mm-hmm. remove our shortcomings, or you know, after meditate, uh, we connect with the consciousness. You know, they'll say the God consciousness, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. cosmic consciousness. How would you put that term into? This practice. Yeah. Do you, do you follow? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Well, first, uh, just so you know, Kevin Griffin's going to be here in November, and he's his new book is on that sort of uh, specifically in the twelve steps and the use of the higher power and how that can be understood from a Buddhist point of view. So it'll be interesting to see that book when it gets published, which should happen within I think six months, and he'll talk about it when he comes in November. Well, first let me just mention that, you know, my, my, I think, direct experience is that there are a lot of beneficent forces afoot and that we can, and maybe even we should, keep an open mind about the beneficent forces around. I mean, in this room there are beneficent forces and uh, some of them are seen and probably some of them are unseen. And uh, so... the influence of the beneficent forces. I mean, the fact that we're all here together is a real blessing. Like, how did that happen? 
Well, it happened because men and women, and who knows other what other kind of beings, have sort of been supporting this practice for a long, long time. And this happening right now is, in a sense, a direct result of all that goodness that's allowed this to happen, that, that has allowed this to arisen like this. But in Buddhism, there's also a real strong emphasis on self-reliance. I know that's sort of an ironic phrase, self-reliance in Buddhism. But the sense that we're not uh, looking for an outside force to resolve our predicament as a suffering being. In, in my senses, all the, you know, this is, a, you know, I have to be careful about this, and it's really okay to disagree with it, but a lot of the spiritual traditions that, that conceptualize a higher power, like God, that it's really uh, <clears throat> people have intuitively recognized something powerfully good, and because that they didn't have any other way, any other way to conceptualize it, they personified it. You know, they created something that made sense to them to sort of represent that good that they directly experienced in their life, in their experience. So they created something really good, and some spiritual traditions say, don't name that really good thing, <laughs> right? And some spiritual traditions say, yeah, give it a name. And generally speaking, once you give it a name, once you have any kind of conceptualized notion of what's good, then you start arguing about it. And people with less direct experience start to proliferate around it and give it shape. And then they get really defensive if somebody has a different view about things because their sense of good is dependent on this idea that this is good here because they don't have the direct experience of good. All they have is the idea of good. I'm not saying they don't actually have the experience of good, but in terms of their practice, they've trained themselves to uh, conceptualize or idealize it. So, you know, that's why the Buddha made this sort of the end of the path. He used a negative. He called it cessation, nibbana. That's what nirvana or nibbana means. It means cessation. It doesn't mean goody-goody. <laughs> Even the word enlightenment, you know, Enlightenment is just, that's an English word, you know. The word is cessation. It's the absence of greed, delusion, and aversion. That's, that's where we're going. That's what we're, not, not heaven, not in the bosom of Abraham, or, which these are really beautiful images, you know, the, the images of the feminine and masculine um, goodness. They're really potent images. And I think there's places, you know, in Buddhism, even though at the time of the Buddha they weren't used much, in the later traditions they started getting used quite a bit again. Partly because of the mixing between Hinduism and the, the way the Buddha taught for so many hundreds of years and the other influences from the other cultures that Buddhism went. But the Buddha didn't. He, was, he tried to be careful. He probably understood that it's really easy once you kind of put form to the path, to the to the culmination of the path, that it's easy to get attached, you know, and to kind of miss the point. 
So there is this sense of it's already here and that because it's already here, it isn't so much, it's, it's more about what's being let go of than what we're getting to, what we're uh, striving for. So we're not looking for a mystical experience. We're looking to see the force of greed and to go right through it, see it for what it is, see it that it isn't self, and in that, in that way, seeing that it isn't self, seeing that it's impermanent and it's not self, the clinging or the grasping or the identification falls away. And then there's a moment of non-greed. When there's non-greed in the mind, what, where does the sense of apartness or separation arise from? So in Buddhism, the, the experience of separation, the experience of delusion or suffering is kind of a it's kind of a, a mistake that arises due to obscurations, like as they are. So the path is just to remove those obscurations. Now, the only reason you would start defining the experience of non-greed, non-fear, non-delusion is if it's useful. If it's not useful to define that experience of release, then why bother to define it? So the Buddha wouldn't do things just because people asked. He would only answer questions if they were skillful, if they actually supported the experience of release, of freedom. If it didn't support the experience of freedom, he didn't go there. And so, you know, there was no systemized philosophical sort of treatise that the Buddha left. He left a lot of specific instructions for specific individuals. That's what we have. And so our job is to understand the different instructions and to, to learn through trial and error, you know, what instruction works at what times. Because the instructions are really about removing the obscurations in the mind and realizing what's already here. And uh, I think it can be useful for some people who have a, especially those people who have a lot of devotional energy, to take some time maybe and to generate. You know, in Buddhism, the Buddha is revered. So in a way, for some Buddhists, he holds that, you know, role of, as the sort of higher power. I don't think that's necessarily wrong, but I think like any kind of medicine, it can have side effects. And we can get caught and a lot of Asian Buddhists are caught. One of the advantages of being a Western Buddha is we weren't raised, you know, if in some more um, traditional Buddhist circles, it's like there's all this stuff around the Buddha and it's like a big deal, all the sort of devotional aspects, it's really a big deal. And it can be, it can really get in the way of the practice. But there is a role for love that devotional energy, and it relates to commitment. But I think, you know, for me, and I think for a lot of us Westerners, that that love, that devotional energy, can be a love of the truth, like the way it is, Dhamma. Like we can really be in love, devoted to wanting to be connected with truth, with our life as it actually is. 
or love, a kind of a universal love is another metta or compassion, loving kindness or compassion. This is something we can really trust and give ourselves to. It doesn't have shape or form, but if you want to use a Kuan Yin statue to remind you of the potential of that unconditional love or compassion, there's no, no harm as long as you understand that the statue represents something that's already true, already available for us. So actually they're really similar because if you're whole and you drop away the character that doesn't fit, mm -hmm. then what replaces it is love. Yeah, the divine. Well, that will be the teacher to drop away the delusion, I guess, of the yeah. version. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. it's the same. I think it's so. It's amazing because you get to the same spot, it seems. Well, because, because the practices of all the different traditions originally, of course, came from mystical experience, direct experience, not from people sort of thinking of a really neat philosophical system. That came later. So they, you know, all these systems clearly have worked for people. The different systems seem, you know, most of them seem to have worked for, for people. But they don't work if we get caught by the surface. You know, we have to see that every system is really a collection of spiritual medicine. And you got to take the medicine. You got to use the medicine, work with it, and it has its effects. Thanks for all the good comments and questions. Let's just take a few seconds and let go of the words. Again, it's always nice to appreciate being here together. How fortunate we are to be in a wholesome gathering like this and how easy it is to appreciate all the beautiful forces that make this possible, including all the lineage of practitioners that came before, shared what they've learned, and all the benefactors, all the volunteers that help make the center thrive and strong, all the people here that do their practice, share the benefit of their practice. So we happily commit to be part of this great stream of wholesomeness. May our lives support peace, freedom from suffering, ease, happiness in all directions. Thanks again, everyone, for coming. A couple of announcements. First, I want to thank Jim, who's our program host. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.